Jesus is down to his last few weeks of life. Last week, Jesus crossed the border between Galilee and Samaria, where he healed those 10 lepers, if you remember. And he's continued making his way down towards Jerusalem, but he seems to be traveling along the eastern side of the Jordan, teaching as he goes. Now, this is the area John the Baptist used to work in before Herod beheaded him. So, you know, John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord and the harvest is ripe here. We saw last week that the further south Jesus gets, the more he runs into Pharisees, scribes, legal experts, Sadducees. And that makes sense because these guys like to be near Jerusalem, the center of power. In fact, the Sadducees are in charge of the temple itself, uh, and since they they entered the story last week, we know Jesus is not more than a day or two's journey away from Jerusalem. He's got to be, you know, relatively close. If you were with us in the class series we had that was titled um, Discipleship 102, you may remember that Jesus has some good friends who live in Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. We met the sisters Mary and Martha, but now we find out they have a brother named Lazarus, whom Jesus also loves deeply as a close friend. This particular story, um, as dramatic as it is, is only recorded in the Gospel of John. It is not in Matthew or Mark or Luke. So you can take that information and do with it what you will. As John tells it, Lazarus falls gravely ill. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. After all, he's apparently just across the Jordan from them, probably uh, just a day's journey away. And they are aware, he's close enough that they are aware that's where he is. When, when Jesus hears the news, he says, this sickness is not a handshake with death, but with the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, you'll notice that my translation as a handshake is unusual. But I think it captures the meaning of the Greek. The usage here means an interface with, proximity to, and advantageous for. It means contact and reaction. So handshake is the best word I could come up with to convey all this. This sickness is not a handshake with death, but with the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by it. Notice that Jesus calls himself son of God when he's speaking to his disciples here. He's had a scrap here and there with the religious leaders in which he talks about being the son of God. But normally Jesus calls himself the son of man. I think he calls himself son of man to emphasize his affinity with us. But this time, this title <laughs> son of God alerts us. He's about to step out in this capacity in a big way. So does Jesus hurry over to Bethany to heal Lazarus? No, he does not. Jesus stays right where he is for two more days. Then he tells his disciples, it's time to start the journey to Bethany. His disciples are scared to death. They say, but 
culture. The religious leaders just tried to stone you there. You want to go there again? And Jesus says, there are 12 hours of daylight. Anyone walking in the daylight will not stumble, for they see by the light of the world. It is at night that people stumble, for the light is not in them. <laughs> now, that's a pretty cryptic answer, isn't it? I, it went, when it goes over my head, I think what Jesus is saying is that the light has come into the world. That would be him. That would be us. But not all darkness has been banished. People still stumble um, who rely on worldly sources of light, things that are not of God. And I guess Jesus is telling his disciples not to be afraid of the religious leaders who want to stone him. They do not have God's light in them and they will stumble. That's just my take on this. You, you may have other ideas that are equally valid. So then Jesus says, our beloved friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I am going to awaken him. Well, the disciples completely misunderstand him. They say, but Lord, if he's sleeping, that means he'll get well. And Jesus tells them, no, I mean, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sake that I wasn't there to heal him. So now you will believe. Come, let us go to him. I want you to notice how often Jesus does things from here on out in an effort to get his disciples to actually believe that he is who he says he is. Many, if not most of the disciples still do not understand. Now, these men love Lazarus too, so it is terrible news to them personally that Lazarus has died. The disciples are between a rock and a hard place. They obviously want to go to Mary and Martha to comfort them, but they believe Jesus is marching straight to his death. Thomas says to the other disciples, let's go with him so we may die too. Thomas, at least, is prepared to die with Jesus. And so they set out on the journey to Bethany, which is just two miles outside of Jerusalem. So if they were across the Jordan and if it took the messenger a day to get to Jesus and Jesus stayed where he was for two more days and it takes him a day to get to Bethany himself, that's four days since Mary and Martha sent word for Jesus to come. When Jesus and the disciples arrive in Bethany, many mourners meet them and tell them, Lazarus has been dead for four days. So it seems as if Lazarus may have died before Jesus even received the message from Mary and Martha. As Jesus draws near the village, Mary stays in the house, but Martha hears that he's nearby and comes out to meet him, crying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. You can tell she wants Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. She knows he can do that. He's done it before. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha responds like people always do when you tell them, oh, your loved one is in a better place or something equally tone deaf. You can feel the hurt and disappointment in her voice. 
when she replies, yes, yes, I, I know he will rise again on the resurrection on the final day. And Jesus sees her hurt and disappointment. And he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if they die. The one who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, Lord. I do believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I'm not sure she thinks Jesus is going to raise her brother from the dead, but she seems to be calmed somewhat and comforted. She runs back to the village to get her sister Mary. She calls Mary aside privately and tells her, Mary, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. Well, Mary immediately gets up to go to Jesus and the other mourners in the house notice her rush away. Well, they think she's going to her brother's tomb to mourn, so they follow her. When Mary reaches Jesus and sees him, she falls at his feet, just sobbing, and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is exactly the same thing Martha had said. And this time, Jesus cannot bear her tears or the grief of the other mourners. He is deeply moved and upset. He can, he can barely get the words out. He says, where have you laid him? And they reply, come and see. And Jesus weeps too. He knows Lazarus will rise again, but he is overcome with the grief Mary and Martha and the others feel. Our tears matter. Our grief weighs on God. Psalm 56, 8 says, you, Lord, have noted my tossing and turning. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your record? God sees each and every painful moment, and not one is wasted. The mourners standing there say, look how he loved Lazarus. But some of them mutter, yeah, but if he can open the eyes of a blind man, couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Finally, they all reach the tomb. Once again, Jesus is overcome with emotion. Jesus tells them, take the stone away. But Martha says, oh, Lord, Lazarus has been dead for four days. There will be a stench. But Jesus replies, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so the men roll the stone away. I wonder if Jesus feels as if he is watching a preview of his own death and resurrection. This is not a parable as far as I know, but I wonder if God timed the death and resurrection of Lazarus as a sort of object lesson to reassure and strengthen Jesus for his coming ordeal. I wonder if this is something Jesus hangs on to as he is tortured later. 
when the stone is rolled away, Jesus looks up and says, Father, thank you for hearing me. I know you always hear me. I'm just saying it out loud for the people who are standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouts, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, who had been dead, comes out. With the strips of linen still wrapped around his hands and feet and a cloth still wrapped around his face. And Jesus says, unbind him, let him go. This is God's call to all the world to come out of death and into life, to be unbound and to be freed. And of course, this has a huge impact on all the people watching. Some of them believe in Jesus but others run straight to the Pharisees to tell them what Jesus has done now. The chief priest, Caiaphas, and the Pharisees call an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin, the chief religious governing council. They can't have Jesus raising people from the dead right outside of Jerusalem itself. One of them says, if we don't do something about this, all the people will believe in him. Another one says, and if that happens, the Romans will come down on us hard. They will take both the place and the people. So clearly they're afraid that if the people rise up and proclaim Jesus is the Messiah, King of the Jews, the Romans will destroy the temple and all the religious hierarchy and the system of sacrifices. Everything that makes the Jewish nation a nation will be destroyed. So does the Sanhedrin call for prayer, sackcloth, and ashes? Do they turn to God? Unfortunately, not. Caiaphas, the high priest, speaks up saying, You know nothing. Don't you realize it's better that one man should die than for the entire nation to perish? John, whose gospel we're reading, inserts an interpretation here. He says that Caiaphas is actually prophesying that Jesus will die not only for the nation, but also for all the Jews scattered all over the world when Israel and Judah were destroyed more than 700 years ago. That scattering is called the diaspora. And the Hebrew prophets consistently say that in the day of the Lord, all Jews from all over the world, the entire diaspora, will be gathered together to Zion. So John sees Jesus' death as a means of gathering all the Jews together and, just, and thus fulfilling these old prophecies. It didn't end up working out that way at that time but it was a reasonable inference on John's part. Anyway, from that moment forward, the Sanhedrin is resolved that Jesus must die for the sake of everyone, and they begin plotting how to kill him. But they do agree they must not arrest him during the upcoming Passover festival, or the people might riot. After the resurrection of Lazarus, it's too dangerous for Jesus to stay in Bethany, which is so near to Jerusalem. I think the people might be looking to make Jesus king by force. 
So John says Jesus leaves Judea and moves to a town called Ephraim near the wilderness. And we don't really know where the town of Ephraim is. The region historically associated with the tribe of Ephraim is north of Jerusalem in what is now Samaria. But John also says the town is in the wilderness, which normally would be the area south, down near Idumea. But whether Jesus goes north or south, it is clear that Jesus and the disciples go into hiding. But Passover is approaching, and Jesus will have to go to Jerusalem for Passover. The time for the Passover festival finally arrives. Jesus is now down to his last two weeks. People have begun streaming into Jerusalem for their ceremonial purification before the Passover begins. And Jesus' name is on everyone's tongue. Will he dare to show up at the festival? The Sanhedrin has given orders that anyone who sees Jesus must report it so he can be arrested. But as we know, the Sanhedrin wants to arrest him in secret so the people don't riot. As Jesus and the disciples prepare to head to Jerusalem, Jesus pulls the 12 aside and says, look, we're going to Jerusalem where everything the prophets have written about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and spit upon and flogged and crucified. Then, on the third day, he will arise. Now, it doesn't get any plainer than that. Surely, the disciples will understand now. But they still think, you know, somehow Jesus isn't going to die. On the third day, he's, he'll arise means he's going to, you know, like have a, a big military coup. They just can't wrap their heads around this. They don't understand that they need to be taking Jesus literally, that these terrible things are about to happen. They keep trying to take his words in some sort of spiritual or allegorical way. Now, this is the third and last time Jesus warns them of what is coming. Looking back, of course, as they write about these events, the disciples realize the significance of Jesus' words, and all three gospel writers include them. But in the moment, the disciples are still expecting Jesus to be crowned king. The mother of two of the disciples, James and John, the, the, those are the two Jesus calls the sons of thunder. Their mother comes to Jesus, bringing her sons along and asks, please let these two sons of mine sit beside you in your kingdom, one on your right hand and one on your left. Jesus says to the three of them, you have no idea what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I am about to drink? Oh, sure, they say, we can do it. And Jesus says, somewhat sadly, I think, yes, you will drink my cup and be baptized in my baptism but I cannot give you the seats on my right or on my left, for they are not mine to give. 
Those places belong to those my father has prepared them for. Now, this is the second time Jesus has referred to his upcoming ordeal as a baptism he must undergo. He talked about it in Luke 12, 50, and now here again in Mark 10, 38. There's a couple of ways we might look at this. One way is that baptism is a transition from one state of being to another. We often think of our own water baptisms this way. And this is similar to our understanding of the conversation with Nicodemus, where Jesus you know, tells Nicodemus he must be born again of the spirit. He has to transition from you know, physical to spiritual. Another way to look at it is as a time of overwhelming of the waters being closed over the head. Um, this sense of the word would pick up on the idea um, of drinking from Jesus' cup and being baptized with his baptism would involve James and John joining with Jesus in his work and the consequences of his work in an even deeper way than they already have. Of course, word of this little coup <laughs> or attempted coup gets back to the rest of the 12 and they are living with James and John. So Jesus calls all the 12 together and says, you're thinking like Gentiles. Gentiles lord it over each other, but that is not how it must be with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great must become the servant, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve to give his life as a ransom, a liberty price for many. Now, this is the first we've heard of Jesus giving his life as a ransom. The word for ransom means paying the price necessary to free a slave. So let's talk about this for a second. Let's do the easy part first. Who would be the slave in this situation? us, right? Okay, easy peasy. So who or what throughout the entire New Testament has been enslaving us? Has it been God? Has God been holding us hostage? Do we need to be rescued from God? Of course not. That is ridiculous. Jesus did not have to ransom us from God. So who or what has been enslaving us? Who or what did Jesus come to free us from? Well, there's several things we could name. And you're actually going to get a, a, a chance to, to add to this list that I'm about to, to brainstorm on my own um, when you get in your study groups. Don't, don't spend a lot of time on that part. I, I think we can come up with lots of things, but I, I would expect that we're, we will come up with things like evil or death, perhaps our own failings and flailings, or maybe our illnesses and addictions are burdening us. I'm sure we could come up with quite a long list of things that are enslaving us and that Jesus himself said he was coming to save us from. And this makes sense when we look at the rest of what Jesus says in this particular passage. 
Jesus says, I came to serve, not to be served. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I personally think we have been totally misreading this statement. I think Jesus is talking about giving his whole earthly life in service. I think he's talking about his entire ministry. His life of service was the ransom. His service was given to us. It was paid to us to ransom us from all these awful things we cling to. I don't think he's only talking about his crucifixion. In, th- in fact, this whole statement is in the context of talking to the disciples about how they need to serve others rather than lord it over each other. Jesus is using his own life as an example, not his death. To say that Jesus was crucified as a ransom payment to God seems to me to be the worst possible twisting of what Jesus is saying here. I do think it makes a ton of sense that Jesus gave himself his whole life to rescue us from evil, from all the things listed here. God sent him for this very purpose, to convince us that God's true desire is to heal us and make us whole and free. And Jesus agreed to be sent. He agreed to become fully human, to serve us, to take on all that we bear. And and we had a choice in our response. The way the choices ended up, Jesus ended up being tortured and dying. But that was not at the hands of God. That was at our hands at the hands of those who sought to maintain their own power. And he did it. Jesus saw his life all the way through to the end. By his stripes, we have been healed. We are healed on the back of his pain. He showed us that if we believe this, then no matter what the world does to us, God has the final word. Jesus showed us that evil and death have no power over us. And he showed us this by undergoing terrible torture and dying. And then God raising him to life so we could see it happen. This is what heals and frees us. This is God's free gift of life to us. Jesus showed us what that looks like here on earth and gave us a glimpse of what it looks like in heaven. Now, I totally understand that you may have very different views and interpretations on this, and I'm just giving you my interpretation rather forcefully, (laughs) but you get to think this through for yourself. And if you land on a different interpretation, that is perfectly okay. This whole thing is a journey. I want you to have a chance to think this through yourselves rather than just you know, swallowing what I've presented here whole. In our breakout groups, let's go back over this and talk about the idea of us being held hostage and of Jesus ransoming us. Hey, all right. <laughs> um, I hope 
this was an interesting discussion for you. What when if we got to the questions? <laughs> <laughs> we got off track. Oh well. <laughs> Each there needs to be one or two questions max because I'm sorry. Four thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Shirley just started into what sounded like it was going to be a deep thought on question four, and then we all just poofed. <laughs> yeah. um, we were talking about something about Jesus understanding our emotions and stuff like that. And now I've lost my thought. Okay. Well, if it comes back to you, you can just pipe up oh. again. Oh. I think it was. Oh, that he felt the emotions of other people, like with the story in Bethany, Jesus wept. That verse is in there. We kind of skipped over that, I think. But Jesus wept partially because of his own hurt, but mostly because he hurt for those who were hurting because Lazarus was dead. Jesus knew he was going to raise him. So Jesus wasn't really hurting because he lost Lazarus. He was hurting because of the emotions of other people. So Jesus was very empathetic. And there's another verse somewhere that says there's nothing that we experience that Jesus himself didn't go through. That he understands our pains and sufferings because he went through pains and suffering. So that's, um, right. that's, that's in Hebrews that he's a, yeah. that that he's he understands those things. Yeah, and, so that's and, all I was going to say. Oh, okay. And Anne made that point as well that that God physically had not experienced our physical suffering, but through Jesus and Jesus being flogged and crucified, mm-hmm. there was then that experience to identify with what we go through. Did I get that right, Ann? We can't we can't hear you, Ann. You'll have to unmute. Yeah, I was more on the tired feet and the heat and the cold and the hungry and but you guys have me confused today because I really thought Christ was crucified to open the gates of heaven so that we could get in because they had been closed off because God was pissed off at everybody. And so now I have no clue. <laughs> Same hat, Ann. <laughs> we got to talking about that too, because that's exactly what my experience was, is that somebody had to die and we could all die like we did in the flood of Noah or Jesus could, you know, die for us. And that... That was the whole, it had nothing to do with, it had nothing to do with, like, they glossed over, like, the religious right were out after him anyway. That was all glossed over. It was that the whole, the whole reason why Jesus came to earth was to die on the cross so that we could go to heaven. And did Jesus blood. ever say any such thing? No. 
There's always the blood had to be shed. The only way the connection between people and God could be reestablished was because that blood was shed on the cross. Because of all the history of blood sacrifice, the blood was like the key. But that was the reason for everything. Was that Baptist? Because that mine was bad. No, that's yes. like a general Christian. You know, that's one of the streams of Christian belief. There are Christianity is very broad, and there are many people who believe different things about Jesus' death. And after his death and resurrection, that just kind of opened the door for all kinds of people to try to put it together in ways that made sense to them. And we're going to see some of those in, in the later parts of the new Testament. Um, And that, but that's why I wanted to go through, I don't know if you've noticed, we've been going through Jesus life slowly and carefully Mm -hmm. and not at an upper view, but at a very close view, because it's important that we understand what Jesus said he came for. Mm -hmm. And, and, It was never, I mean, in some ways, it almost felt like we were discouraged from reading the Bible. And a lot of the, even in the Bible study classes I took at the church, it was not, you know, it was like the person who was teaching the Bible study knew more than you would ever know. So... So don't, don't even try to question it or go look in the Bible for yourself, because these are people chosen by God to teach us what God wants. And almost like it was, it was really, as long as you could say certain verses verbatim Mm -hmm. and knew this one prayer, you're good. But anyone else that disagreed with that, they were all going to hell anyway. I mean, chosen by God stuff. That's like a red flag for me. Well, because it it is to me now. (laughs) It wasn't to me then, but I am so glad that I am finally learning what the Bible actually says instead of what I was told for most of my life that the Bible said. I'm thankful that along the way, I had a teacher who said, read it for yourself. See what the Bible says. Don't believe every teacher just because they're teaching. Yeah. I'm very thankful for that man. And that would go for me as well. You know, I'm I'm putting it out there. And I want you to know I'm, I know for sure I'm getting some of this wrong, but so, you know, that's just the way teachers are going to be, no matter how educated and qualified and spiritual and wise they are, they're still going to get it wrong. And I undoubtedly am getting it wrong in some places, but I'm trying to help you grasp the big themes the handrails you know coming in later so if it is and you want to say we'll discuss it later that's fine what about the verse without the shedding of blood there's no remission for sin 
Yeah, we're going to get to that later. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> We in our group, we were talking about how some churches have this um, the hymns. I think is what Rhonda had mentioned. You know, I'm not. I won't sing. I'm not. I'm not a value. I need you. Everything is about you, God. I am nothing. Mm-hmm. And I countered with that that my view is we're made in the image of God. So we're everything. We have God's blessing. We have God's love. We have his encouragement. If we seek that out, you know, then we have so much because he's bestowed that into us by loving us. And that gives us freedom. You sound like a Methodist, Julia. I am on the washed in the spirit of the blood, you know. Are you washed in the blood? The blood of the lamb. Yeah. 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 I was trying to sing it. Yeah. (laughs) That's the one I recognized it. And my choir director at my Methodist church was telling us he was having a lot of difficulty um, finding Lenten music for the choir to sing because he said most of his musical background was Lutheran. And he said, Lutheran music for Lent is all about how I'm a worm and I'm filthy and I'm worthless. And he said, that is not consistent with the theology of this particular church. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and I think that, that I hope that you're seeing the distinction, the both and in that, in that we, we are, it is not, we, we are, we are definitely as Julia said, created in the very image of God and participate with God and interact with God and work alongside God. Um, but we are not God. Well, that's- all power and all glory belongs to God. And we are, we are to be self-effacing, to, to be a conduit, to be, you know, simply be there doing what we see daddy doing, you know, um, and, and getting out of the way, not getting in between God and other people, but facilitating, helping people point towards God, you know? So, so in a, in a, certainly our power is worse than worms you know if we the 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 power of the world that what we you know the power we lord over other people is mm-hmm. damaging it's worse than worms <laughs> um what 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 we need to do is be absolutely in awe and amazement as we stand and watch god do god's thing when we talked about the who's enslaved or who or what is enslaving us, we we kind of talked a little bit about different, I mean, it's us, but you could single out groups, you know, the persecuted, the less fortunate. And I think it was Renee brought up the wealthy because, for example, the titan. The owner became so, um, I'm not wanting to use the word arrogant, but. There was a lot of hubris. 
Yes, and and when you get away from being humble with God and you start to think you're you're the one, it's all you because he does give us such confidence. But there's such gifts and gifts. And there comes a point though where and I'm not saying this happened with that person, but you get to a tipping point where you go, well. Maybe I don't need to worry about this or that. And then, but if you take people with you, and that's what we do in life, we get to a point where we don't focus sometimes. And we got to realize we're taking people with us when we're there. So Mm -hmm. it's a constant struggle to keep giving the glory to God, being understanding that he is the one that empowers us so much. And that's the word empowerment, because sometimes we get a little full of ourselves. Like right now, I should stop talking. <laughs> no, but you know, you know what the, the, the Jesus gave us a couple of red flags that we could use to make sure that we're on the right tr- path. One of them we've, we was long ago where he said, you'll know them by their fruit, right? That's how you know. The one here. The red flag here that he keeps giving to his disciples over and over and over is when you find yourself placing yourself over someone else in any way whatsoever, thinking that you're more important, you're more deserving, you more, you, you're, you should be more honored, you're more holy, you're more closer to God, whatever. When you find yourself thinking have the impulse that you're more and you should be in the front rather than in the back. That could, is a red flag. Could this not be? Right I, I was, okay. Go ahead, Ann. I'm sorry. I was thinking when the, the two brothers sitting at the right and left. Yeah. You'll be there, but you're not sitting in those seats, guys. Yeah. I got to thinking about throughout the Old Testament, the Jews are the chosen people constantly. Chosen people, you know, we're the ones that God has favor with and everything. But when you look at it, Jews took the hit for the crucifixion of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so maybe was it not that the Jews were walking around going, yo, God loves us. We're his favorites. And now you guys aren't anything. So did not Christ come down to say, wait a minute, God's here for everyone, dudes. Mm hmm. It certainly got Jesus through his, you know, as he moved through his life, it became more and more apparent that God was here for everybody. And there were, when the gospel writers went back and wrote this all down and they did the first part about Jesus' birth, they included prophecies that, old prophecies that highlighted that Jesus had come for all um, and stories that that said Jesus had come for all, but you're right. That had not been a theme that had been picked up culturally and ingrained into the culture. Um, but I think the calling of the Jews as the chosen people, they were chosen. I think we looked at it last week. They were chosen to walk in the face and light of God and be whole and bless the world, and to be like what Jesus came and did. They were to be as Jesus was, to show the world where God is. 
It's almost like organized, I guess you would call it organized religion. They get into that hubris that Julia was talking about is they, they get into that. We are the only ones important to God. Nobody else is important to God. It's because I know I was taught in, it was a Baptist church. Like um, Donna pointed out that anyone that did not believe exactly like the Baptists were not saved. We're not going to heaven. That included the Jews, which always, that, that was the only one that when they said that, that pastor said that, that was like, mm, wait a minute. <laughs> um, that was the only time I really questioned it, but it included, you know, Jews didn't go, Catholics didn't go, Protestants, nobody went except for evangelical people because they're the only ones that had it right. Everybody else was flawed. And it was almost like it didn't matter. I mean, we only had communion like once a quarter where I was more of a, um, my previous background was Lutheran and we had it every Sunday. And they were like, it was almost like they were just going through the motions, just having enough of that. But it didn't, it, it was not, a lot of the stuff they taught wasn't biblical. It wasn't based in the Bible. I don't know where they came up with it or got it from because it's not in there, but you weren't supposed to question anybody. Well, I think and that it's just like, it's, it's like it's a cult. But it happens in a lot of ways. Every, every religion, there are some churches like that. And it, it's scary. It's very scary. But there are some that are good. And they serve. Like, that are good. There was a time yeah. I was Baptist and it served me well. And then there came a time where it no longer did. And I, I took the wrath of being a divorced woman <laughs> in the congregation. And I just couldn't wear that big D on my chest. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't do it. And the way people treated me and I left the church. And I saw down another church that didn't treat me that way. But during the time of my life that I attended, it served me. It helped me, oh, yes. through fear, no doubt, kept me on the straight and narrow. You know, just put that fear into someone and you can control them completely. <laughs> That's and part of the problem. Don't be afraid to step a toe mm -hmm. out of line. Mm -hmm. Renee, it depends on who the pastor of the church is, whether it's like that or not. Or yeah. who the governing body of that church is. Because I've been in Baptist churches that were like that. Mm -hmm. And I've been in Baptist churches that were not like that. Yeah. So it's it's not the Baptists. No, I think particular. it's that particular sect of them but and I just happened to you know stumble into one that was like that but I I still need to forgive myself 
because I didn't know when we started going there and until the very end when God woke me up and said, you know, stuff got so far out of what I believed in, in human beings. And I know that my kids being raised there didn't help them. And I blame myself because like, like I've told, told my daughter, I said, I drank the Kool-Aid. I'm sorry. I didn't know that it was wrong. But you're here now and you can go forward. Yep. And that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Exactly. It's like Maya Anderson said, Maya Angelou. Angelou. <laughs> Once we know better, we do better. Yeah. I, I just shudder to think if we were still in Colorado going to that church, I don't know what would have happened when Sandra came out. I don't know what I would have done. And that really scares me. Well, you can let go of that. Yeah. Working on it. <laughs> what if they're not going to help you right now? Going forward yeah. and just knowing that you love your children, your children love you, and you're trying to make things better. Yeah, and my therapist keeps some... saying, quit, quit looking, you know, forgive yourself. And that is something I have a really hard time to do. It's very hard to do, Renee. It's very hard to do. Absolutely. And it's not something that happens like it, you do it and then it, forever you feel, you know, you keep having to re-forgive yourself. Don't <laughs> you? Um, and, and I think that part of it um, is, is helping us learn this is in a microcosm us learning mm -hmm. to let go and let god do the healing something else that hit me during all this conversation and you know the little light bulb went off <laughs> when jesus was praying in the garden and we'll get into this later i'm sure too um and he said let this cup pass from me if that's possible and all this time, because of my upbringing, I focused on the death. But the death wasn't the important part. The important part was that he was resurrected. And he had to go through the death to get to the resurrection. So when he asked, let this cup pass for me, and the reason the cup couldn't be passed from him, was not because he had to die, but because he had to be resurrected. Oh my gosh. I'm like, mind blown. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Wow. Jesus is, I think that um, we focus on the death way more than on the life. And what Jesus called us was to do life like he does life. Yes. I, I think it was something that, that Anne said in, in answer to the question about how did Jesus take on our pain and suffering? You know, because again, in a lot of churches, we were taught that what that was referencing was the beating and the crucifixion. 
where she said, <clears throat> how did he bear our transgressions? Was that he didn't turn away from those who were suffering, came as a humble person, came as one of us, relying on others even for food and shelter. Um, sore feet, tiredness, cold, you know, living as the poorest among us was bearing our pain and suffering in addition to, or even instead of our understanding that the pain and suffering only came at the end. Yes. Yes. And was, is exactly right on that. It's Jesus bore our burdens, our pain, our suffering alongside us with us <laughs> and he healed us and he healed us in all the different ways you know that we could be healed and he came alongside and he bore those things and he kept saying to people it's your own faith that is healing you you can do this you and god can do this you know this discussion begs the question with me talking about the crucifixion, the cup passing, the resurrection. What if Jesus didn't die? What if we didn't persecute him and crucify him and him die in that manner? And would his life and mission have been for naught? Would he have just been another maybe Gandhi or somebody else who was a good person with life lessons we should notice. I just wonder about that. What if that hadn't happened? What if that big climax to the story had been different? Would we still have gotten it? Would we still understand that he is the son of man and he wants us to love him, love God and love ourselves? And be open to these teachings. Yeah. And so, so let me just kind of rephrase that question just a little bit to say, what if we had accepted and believed in him rather than rejecting him? Because unless we did accept and believe in him, Ultimately, he would have been killed by some political power. I mean, that's just the way it was going to be. It might not have been the, the Jews. It might, it could have been the, it, it was the Romans. You know, it ultimately was the Romans, guys, um, and not the Jews. And um, it would have been somebody. So what, this is such a great question, Julia. What would have happened if we had accepted that Jesus is who he says he is. And, and we just flung our hearts open and to each other and to God. What would have happened? Would Jesus had need, would he have needed to have been crucified? That's hard to say because you can use the Old Testament to foreshadow anything. Pretty much. There's something in there. You could dig it up. Someone could. <laughs> Dig it up. Well, certainly the the one that I, that that we talked about in our breakout groups about 
how he you know, took on our transgressions and by his stripes we were healed. That one we've dealt with already. And that's the main one that points to being crucified. You know, there is there, 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 um, Psalm 22 is another one. Um, but but uh, the bulk, by far the vast majority of messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Bible do not predict that the Messiah is going to die. They predict, part of the reason the Jews missed it, right? That's right. They predict that Jerusalem will be under siege and the Messiah is going to come and rescue her from her enemies and will usher in a time of peace and blessing and long life such as never been seen in the world. And the Holy Spirit will fall on your sons and your daughters and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will prophesy and people will sit, everybody will sit out on their lawn as part of it, as part of the prophecies, it doesn't say that it, I think Jesus' crucifixion was never the plan. I think there are indications that we were going to reject him, certainly. And those are reflected around the edges of the prophecies. But the way it was supposed to happen was there was only supposed to be one coming and it was supposed to usher in an absolute reign of peace. Well, we messed that one up. Right? Yeah. And then it seems like power got in the way. Human power got in the way because I think the people... I mean, everywhere Jesus went, the people, most of the people loved him and and wanted him to, you know, be everything. But it was the, the powerful religions and the powerful governments that decided, nah, no, we're not giving up our power. That's it, it in a nutshell, Renee. Don't you think that oh, what about Jesus or with God being all known? He knew ahead of time that we were going to reject. Mm-hmm. He knew ahead of time that Jesus was going to be crucified. So that's why we have the prophecy in Isaiah. He was despised and rejected, et cetera, et cetera. Led like a lamb to the slaughter. Mm-hmm. We have free will. It might not have happened. And God knows our tendencies, but he gives us an opportunity to make choices. He doesn't micromanage us. Yes. And there are places in the Hebrew Bible where God changes his mind. He says something's going to happen and the prophet begs him to change his mind. And God does changes his his mind because of our choices. This is when you could pull in quantum physics. (laughs) (laughs) You might be able to, but Donna, I heard you say something. I guess I still all get mired in my own, the whole thing we were talking about earlier with the reasons why and what, oh, sorry. So what happened? Okay, that all could happen then. What about all the generations to come? What about us today? 
if that hadn't all happened, we just all supposedly would still be getting the story going forward that everything was okay now, or <laughs> if, if it had, you know, it will be like, it will be in the future. Um, the, the Hebrew prophecies say that there will be a reign of peace. God will heal his people. People will live long lives says someone who's a hundred and dies would be considered like that would be a tragedy if they died as young as a hundred and, you know, no more miscarriages, no more, you know, there's all these prophecies, which you can decide how literally you take them, but that is God's plan. God's plan for us was the garden of Eden. Right. Right. I I think that's the only thing I think you got right. (laughs) You know, and I think that this is all getting us back there. Yeah, right. Because the supposedly the blood, that's back to the blood stuff. The blood sacrifices were the thing put in place Mm -hmm. to reestablish the connection that was broken in the Garden of Eden. Since we, I'm not saying that's how it is, that's what I got caught. We brought this up a couple of times. So, so just to keep y'all from worrying about this, um, the, but I, I, my the reason for bringing that up is just still the connection to something happening that then covered everybody, right? You know, I'm saying whatever that was, that, that bringing it back to what if that hadn't happened? Well, back in the in the Hebrew Bible, those blood sacrifices were daily object right. lessons, right? And monthly festivals or monthly. That's why Jesus was different. Object lessons. <laughs> and yes. And, and, um, but always God was making a way for people to understand that God mm. forgave them. Every year at Yom Kippur, they would lay their sins symbolically the priest would lay his hands on the head of a little goat and pray all the sins of the into community that. onto that little goat. And that little, that little goat would be let, let out to wander far away in the distance as the people watch their sins growing smaller and smaller and smaller yeah. far Wait. away. That's where we get our word scapegoat. So Always, fish were put on the goat that they put away, yes. not on the one day sacrifice. Yes. Oh my okay. gosh, that's where we get our word scapegoat from. I knew that, but it just didn't hit me until just now. All of these are just ways that God was trying to meet people where they were. Those people only understood gods that required blood sacrifices. That was right. the culture they lived in. They sacrificed their children. They sacrificed their animals. They sacrificed everything. That's what they did. And God met them there. We don't want to hang our theology on that. Right. But it was just the Jews. I get, I'm trying to get myself the point that it changed from being the chosen people that seeing that's all that was versus then with Jesus it becoming everybody for everybody is how they were trying to get that. And yeah, and, and but that had to do with myself. him coming. That had to do with Jesus coming and being who he was and bringing God's message of 
God saying, I want to heal you and make you whole in every way. That was Jesus message. That was why he came. And it never from God or Jesus, either one ever said it was because Jesus needed to like cut his wrists or anything and do a blood sacrifice. So you're good. Let me see if I am this right. So Jesus being born and coming to teach was to teach the whole world that everybody mattered. It had nothing to do with how he died that caused everybody to be, everybody but the Jews to be, everybody including the Jews to be saved. Correct. We were always saved. God made ways, God had made ways from thousands of years before of of how to draw near to God. And being saved, that word means being made whole and being healed. That is what that word literally means. I think I think Jesus also in his ministry sort of started to teach his followers that when he would when he healed the the Roman centurion slave and when he spent time with the Samaritan and when he taught that that it was a Samaritan who was the compassionate one um, taking the Jews out of their their little worldview that we are the only righteous people um and and helping to focus them more on no god loves all people and i'm here for more than just the jews but they probably didn't get that point until later um they probably were just more confused by it at the time and he also kept breaking the rules Right. He kept saying, it's not what you do. It's not this stuff that you're doing. It's not these rituals. It's not this, you know, don't work on the Sabbath. It's not that. And he told them over and over and he kept getting in trouble over and over. But that's the message. It's not about the rituals. Another question. Okay. All of this has brought up another thought that I was taught that God established the blood sacrifice when Adam and Eve sinned and they knew they were naked and God came down and they were clothed with fig leaves, but he gave them animal skins to wear. And that was the first blood sacrifice because he had to kill animals to get that. Not necessarily. They might have been dead already, but whatever. Okay. Okay. Well, that's what I was taught. Mm-hmm. Not saying that's correct, mm-hmm. just saying that's what I was taught. Mm-hmm. And I was taught that a lot by different people. So it's like in there. Mm-hmm. But we're saying that's not the case. Well, I'm telling you that that's not the evidence I see in the scriptural record. Wow. All the way through. And those of you have, who have studied all of the classes or even a portion of the classes or been, you know, on the journey know that that's just not how god is god doesn't throw up barriers to us god Uh makes it possible for us to be with him i think you would have to to get to that 
that end idea would take a little bit of mental gymnastics in reading that, you know, because I wouldn't, I, I never was taught that. And I wouldn't. About the sacrifice, about God having to do a sacrifice for Adam to make Adam and Eve clothes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I, I never I, heard that before either, but I, I can see why that people by that. just reading it and seeing that God offered them a warm clothes, something better suited than a fig leaf, <laughs> you know. I wouldn't get those mental, I would say that takes some mental gymnastics to get there that that was the first blood sacrifice. And of course, shadowing of the crucifixion. And you have to be looking at the scripture through that lens to get there. And that's what is happening is that, that, you know, we come at the scripture with lenses on. And one of the lenses that is very strong is the blood sacrifice lens. And so that perspective is from being punished. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. The whole thing was a punishment because we disobeyed. And then God was good to try to come up with ways around and still be true to who he is to allow us to have communication and take care of us in some dysfunctional way. (laughs) Yes. So it all starts from a punishment, not a, oh, I'm loving you, giving you a fig leaf or anything like that. Yes. We're aware now of things, you know. Yes. We weren't supposed to be. Yes, Donna. And I think it's huge for you to actually see that um, and see the pervasiveness of that lens and for all of us to see the power of that lens, but the power of setting that aside and, and trying on another lens of looking at this through, through God's unwinding. Yes. If you pick up another lens and look at the entire scripture through the lens of God wanting us, and wanting to heal us and wanting to help us, it transforms the whole thing. It does. It makes me think when he gave them the animal skins instead of the, the fig leaf, it was like a big band-aid, you know, with Hello Kitty on it. It made it better. It did make it better. They knew they had goofed. They knew they had fallen on their face and they knew that they were scraped up and that they were imperfect. And he gave them the band-aid, basically, that helped them to go forward. Because they could see their shame. God saw their shame and covered it. Yeah. They sewed their fig leaves. God made them something better. Yeah. That's awesome. I can't hear you, Renee. Um, so let me ask this, because we're back to another place where I was always taught that this is what, you know, where man screwed up. I was taught that Adam and Eve sinned so badly that God threw them into a desert, killed animals to skin them. And that's where original sin comes from, that everybody is born with sin. 
from little bit. That's why that's why I was a lot of people tell me, well, that's why you can't have people having abortions, because until those babies can get to know God when they're however are baptized when their babies are baptized when they're seven and can say the sinner's prayer, those babies will go straight to hell because they're full of sin. Yeah. And I just don't think that's how God has set any of this up. So like original sin and all that, it's just all malarkey. Yeah, pretty much. Yes. Yes. Not pretty much. It is. Yes. And it wasn't invented until like 400 and something after Christ. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So I love you, you guys. I need to go. This is like a big, has been a big thing, I think. Um, Uh Um, Those of you who know Susan Cottrell, she's in town. I'm going to, I need to leave because Ah! I don't have lunch with her. So um, I will. I, I need to go, but this has just been so rich and so wonderful. It has know. been. It's so wonderful. Thank you. They dropped me a lot. Tell her hi. Okay, I sure will. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.